finished my sermon on Thursday evening. Got up Friday morning and was not very happy with it. So I went to a restaurant and uh, sat there in the middle of a busy restaurant and I opened my the case, open Bible in a public room. The waitress comes over and she goes, are you studying the Bible? Yes, I am. I just love you. I just love you. Oh, okay. And so a few minutes later, another waitress comes by and says, I don't know what's going on on this table, but whatever it is, include me in your prayers. Just open a Bible in a public place and see what happens. But Nevertheless, after several hours in that place and a couple of pots of coffee, this is the sermon. It's good and bad for you because the first sermon I had was way too long. And this sermon is only 72 verses. I don't know who needs this sermon today, but I suppose the Lord would have you to have it. I'm preaching on the love of God. We're still in John 13:1. He loved his own to the end. I wanted to give a bigger view of the love of God, and my first attempt failed, and so now we come to Psalm 78, and we will be there for the remainder of the message. Two things that you need to know as we work through this text. We'll read piece by piece, and hopefully it'll all come together and make sense in the end. Uh, But one thing you need to know is I want to show the immeasurable love of God, but the difficulty is... When you see this displayed in a nation with all of these people, God's love affects people different ways. And so the love of God being manifest is going to be a form of judgment for some, but it's going to be a means of sanctification for his own. John 13, 1, he loved his own to the end. So for his own... This love is going to be different in that it's electing love and it's going to be a sanctifying force. That's one thing. Another thing that you need to know, and I can't make you believe this, but I can only encourage you to do so, is that you would believe today before you leave this room, you would believe that God loves you. Now, if you actually believe that God loves you, it's going to have a radical impact upon your fear level. It's just common sense. If you, you know, uh, Samantha uh, had a little baby, and I assume that Rory and Samantha love this little baby. They really love it. Their first child, I assume they really love the child. They want the child to come home, and they want to hold this child. They love the child. I would assume they would do anything necessary to feed the child. Even if it requires leaving it in the hospital to make sure it gets the right amount of food until they can bring it home. And I would also assume that if someone was to threaten their child, they would do whatever they could to defend it. And we all understand that, right? Well, look, what we're going to understand from this sermon is, is that God loves his children. You do understand that whatever is needed in your life, that God will supply it. That whatever danger come against you, God will defend you. Because he loves you. I hope you'll see that this morning. There is a lot of fear uh, going on in this world in which we live, and that's probably a whole sermon in and of itself. But just in a snapshot, people, no-brainer, people fear COVID. 
People fear the economy and the situation of our economy. People fear the Democrats. People fear other races. People fear inflation and what's going to become of the economy in that sense. People fear gas prices. People's moods change based upon the price of gas and which way it goes. And many in many different states are fearing civil unrest, the defunding of police, and on and on the list goes. But it, oddly enough, we Christians live in fear, and then we wake up and turn on the TV in order that we can listen to more lies and have more fear in our life. And so we feed ourselves with lies in order that we can maximize the fears of which we live under. And we're living this under a God who loves us, and we have no reason to fear. You say, well, how does it say it in the Bible? I think it says it like this. There is no fear in love. There's none in love. Why? Because perfect love casts fear out. And so if you were to embrace and receive the love of God, fear must go. Love is greater than fear. The God of heaven not only, not only does he love you, but he has the power to do whatever he pleases in order to take care of your life. When you understand that you're loved by divine omnipotence, there simply is not anything to be a fearing. Simply nothing to be afraid of. I've been young and I've been old, but I've never seen the righteous begging for bread. God always takes care of his children. The immeasurable love of God ought to be cherished. It ought to be believed. It ought to be shared. And it ought to be experienced. Point number one. The immeasurable love of God. Verses one through four. We'll work through the text and we'll jump through some verses. But just go with me. And I hope God would speak to you according to his word. Verses 1 through 4, preparing the next generation. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I'm going to open my mouth in a parable. I'm going to utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from our children. But we will tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So in verses 1 through 4, preparing the next generation. How does it work? We read the Bible and we understand biblical history. What did God do with the nation of Israel? What did God do when they were in Egypt? How did God deliver them? What happened when they, after they wandered around with the 40 years and they went into the land to make a conquest? What happened to those walls they marched around? And we, we go through biblical history like that and we see this supernatural work and a supernatural work and a supernatural work and we look at that and we remember that and we tell our children and we explain to our children, I know you have a difficulty here. And I know you're going through hardship. But remember when God, remember when God, remember when God, your situation is far smaller than these. And God had no trouble. Listen, dear son. Listen, dear daughter. God can take care of you. That's what we do. We take the love of God as revealed in biblical history. And we tell our children where they won't be a fearing. 
You don't have to fear. God can handle a whole nation under Pharaoh in Egypt, and he can deliver all of them. Dear child, he can deliver you. Tell the next generation. You don't have to live in fear of President Biden. You don't have to live in fear of COVID. You don't have to live in fear of the stock market. Do you think God's going to run out of money? Do you think God's going to run out of food? Look, if he wants to, he'd take a rock and split it and draw water out of it and give everybody a drink. Remember that God's not only loves, he has the power to take care of you. If you get tired of manna, he'll bring a good old wind, and he'll bring some birds around, and you'll be eating quail tomorrow. God loves his children, and he has the power to sustain them. Tell the next generation, put your hope in God. Put your hope in God, verses 5 through 8. Put your hope in God. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children. So that what? What's the purpose of passing this to the next generation? That they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments, and that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Verses 5 through 8, here's how much God loves. He gave you a law. He gave you parameters. He gave you structure. Live this way. Don't do this. Don't do that. Walk this way. Don't walk that way. Oh, what great joy. A God would love you enough to give you the parameters of how his love works for your good. Look, don't commit adultery. It'll run you. It'll tear you up. and It'll destroy your family. Look, don't lie. It will take and it will Run your character and your integrity will be blown. Don't be an idolater. Don't be covetous. God is preserving you, giving you a way to function that you know how to live. And God's design is the best. You know, look, if, you're a, if a people are not loved, there's no one to give them a law. And you know what happens? Everybody does what's right. God loved enough to give law, and that law is to be taught to the next generation. I'm trying to do that even in the church. We're going through the Ten Commandments even now in our catechism. I'm trying to pass this stuff on for your good. God loves enough that you should pass it on to the next generation. He gave us a law, but He is a powerful God. Look at verse 12. Powerful God. In the sight of their fathers, He performed wonders. In the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan, he divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the waters stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink abundantly from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock. He caused waters to flow down like rivers. Think about the wonders he performed. I, can't, I don't have time. There's too many verses and too much time, but just think about this. Here's the reality of biblical history. 
a nation of over a million people is coming out of Egypt. All of Egypt has changed their mind, and the whole nation, the entire nation of Egypt is chasing Israel, and you come up to a body of water, and you can't go forward, and behind you. The God who loves his people has power enough to split the water and cause his people to walk on dry land. They would cross to the other side and when the enemy approaches, he would drown all of them. Look, if God can deliver every single one of his children from Egypt, he can deliver you. And he loves you that much that he would deliver you out of each and everything. God would never turn his back on his child. Give them a cloud by day, give them a fire by night, everything they needed for right direction in their life. May I submit to you, I don't have a cloud and I don't have a fire, but can I tell you that God's given you a book? God's given you a book in order that you'd know how to walk each day. You'd know how to guide yourself when things are dark. You would know that whatever situation comes up, God didn't give you a book with blank pages. He gave you wisdom. He gave you instruction. He gave you example after example after example. And so God has provided. God's given you everything you need to live life now and to be prepared for the life to come. He loves you that much. He, he provides you with every blessing. How much does the Word of God mean to your heart? How much does it satisfy your soul? Can anybody in the room testify that you were down in the valley of the shadow of death and you read something in the Word of God and your heart was strangely warm and you felt the love of God upon you and you were so encouraged? Has anybody in the room ever been blessed by this book? God gave it to you because He loves you. You know God didn't have to reveal himself? You know God would still be God if he never revealed himself to anyone? That God would still be God if he never gave you any instruction? He would still be God? But this triune God revealed himself in his word because he loves you. God was provoked by people, but yet he was patient. Look at verse 21. Provoked and patient. Therefore, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. Fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Why? Because they did not believe in God. They did not trust his saving power. Mark down verse 32. You want to generate anger from the God who loves? Stop believing him. Stop trusting him. Yet he commanded the skies. Look, look at what, look at the love of God here. Just they opened the doors of heaven. He rained down on them manna to eat. He gave them grain from heaven. They ate bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led to the south wind. He rained on them uh, the meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. Did you see the generosity of God here? Just think about the number of sins you've committed this week, and yet you didn't go hungry. 
Think about all the times you didn't pray, all the times you didn't read, all the times you didn't meditate upon the Word of God, all the times you cursed, all the times you had lustful thoughts, all the time you were selfish, all the time you were prideful, and yet you sat down and paid $20 for a meal, $15 for a meal. Where'd you get the money? Where'd you get the job? You you laid down last night in a queen-size bed, for goodness sakes, and you had an air conditioner, and you didn't even sweat while you were sleeping. And so we, we got all this ingratitude, and God God's just blessing and blessing and blessing. And he's blessing a people who many times don't even appreciate it. You can't even comprehend love like this. You would not act like this towards somebody who would treat you this way. But God does. When God makes a covenant with people, God's love loves them to the end. Notice, they ate and were filled. He gave them what they craved. Verse 30, but before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, I'll explain this later, but the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. We'll revisit that in a moment. Provoked yet patient, because they didn't believe, because they didn't trust, think about it personally. Why do you not believe God? Why do you not trust God? You say, why are you saying that? Because if you live in fear, it's because you don't believe Him. If you live in fear, it's because you don't trust Him. That is the very thing that provokes the anger of God. provokes His wrath. For some, it's going to be judgment. For others, it's going to be discipline and sanctification. In that text, full of wrath, a fire kindled, and anger killed the strongest of them, laid low their young men. But, in contrast, patience is seen in what? Here's manna. Here's quail. He keeps giving to an ungrateful people. I mean, to me, that's enough for the whole sermon. We can stop right here. Just the reality that God would generously supply to an ungrateful people. How much giving will you do to somebody who doesn't appreciate it? Doesn't last long for us. But God's been doing it for age after age after age. Why is that? Well, because he's pure love. Look at verse 38. Yet he, God, being compassionate, is who he is. What did he do? What is the exemplification of his compassion? He atoned for their iniquity, and he did not destroy them. Implication, they deserve to be destroyed, but yet he sent his son to die in their place. He restrained. He restrained his anger. Anybody happy? He restrained his anger. His anger would have consumed everybody, but it was restrained. Restrained his anger once, twice, Often, often he's restrained his anger and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered, and I'm I'm very happy, he remembered they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. The gentleness of God, the just a breath, the just a passing. I can't can't just come all off on them. And so he restrained his anger often lest he consume them in the way. And then if you also look at verse 44, this is a long section, but look what he does for his people. Verse 44, 
He turned the rivers into blood so that they could not drink of their streams. This is talking about what God did to Egypt in order to deliver his people. 45, he sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts, the fruit of their labor to the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail, their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to hell, the flocks to the thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death. He gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then... He led out his people like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a that he's leading them out by love. That as soon as a difficulty arises, you're going to say, "What'd you do? Bring us out here to kill us? We had pots of meat back in Egypt." He knows their hearts. But yet he's still leading them like sheep, like a flock. Even knowing their hearts are such unbelieving and untrusting, he's still loving them. He led them into safety. Oh, there it is. So that they were not... Anybody? They're not afraid. Why would you be afraid if you had a God who could do this? You think Biden has more power than Pharaoh? You think the Democrats are stronger than Nebuchadnezzar? Is that what you think? Was it, oh my gosh, the world's worse than it's ever been. You hadn't seen the likes of Nebuchadnezzar. You hadn't seen the likes of Pharaoh in this degree. Man, these guys were brutal. And God's able to deliver. So why would you have fear? The fear you have is more than likely self-inflicted because you've bought the lie of the media and you let the media in your home every day and you fill your mind and heart with it instead of filling your mind and heart with the Word of God. That's where your fear is coming from. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies. He brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession and settled the tribes of Israel in their tents it's pure love god is love and god is able listen to that church please listen you're not going to get this on your stupid tv god is love god is able if god is all power it's just brutality if god is all love it's just sentimentality but god is both he is all powerful and he's all loving in a perfect harmony for his own to the end and then you have the precision very precise god's justice and god's love verse 59 when god heard they had rebelled again but when he heard he is full of wrath he utterly rejected israel he forsook his dwelling at shiloh the tent where he dwelt among mankind he delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. It's when the ark of God was captured and lost. He gave his people over to the sword. He vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men. Their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword. Their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep. 
like a strong man shouting because of wine. Now, we pause there for a moment, but you see this precision in judgment, and in the same group of people that are receiving judgment, there's a group that's being loved with a love that will last to the end. One big group, some are being judged, precise judgment, and others are being held on to. It's a different type of love. You have a Judas doesn't know about electing love. Saul in the Old Testament, first king, doesn't know about electing love. Esau doesn't know about electing love. But there are those who know. And now look here at the text. He says, verse 66, he put his adversaries, put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. Now notice the distinction. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose, did not elect the tribe of Ephraim. But he elected or he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. This is electing love. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he had founded forever. And he elected or he chose David, his servant. He took him from the sheepfolds, you know, the one that was forgotten and left at home back in the back and nobody cared about. That's the one God elected. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, with integrity, David shepherded them. David guided them with his skillful hand. David is a type. Christ is the fulfillment. Christ is going to be the one, is the one, who shepherds the elect of God. He's the one who guides them, and he loves them too the end. What does the shepherd do? Very quickly, feeds, guides, and protects. And our shepherd loves us enough to do that for us every day, even when we are so ungrateful not to give him thanks for what he's doing in our life. It's just astounding to me that God would love me when I know stuff about me. You know stuff about you. It's like, how in, this is the right question, how could God love me? Have you ever asked that question? It's like, knowing what you know about yourself, why in the world would God love you? It must be electing love, because i got nothing to bring to the table. I, empty, I come to the cross empty-handed. I just cling to the cross begging for mercy. I've got nothing to give but rebellion and sin, and yet God in his electing love, chooses and draws me to himself and stamps a covenant love on me that can't end. Makes me love God all the more. Now, that's the immeasurable love of God in this chapter. Now back up and let's contrast this with the ingratitude of mankind. You need to see both. It won't take us long, but verses 9 through 11, and we get the same point several times here, rebellious. Verses 9 through 11. The Ephraimites, armed with, and notice these Ephraimites, they're armed with the bow. They, they're strong. They're, they're a very capable group. They're waged for war and able to fight. But the text says they turned back on the day of battle. They, they didn't keep God's covenant. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. 
the ingratitude, the rebellion. God had given them the law. He had given them instruction and said, pass it on to the next generation. They're armed. They've got their bows. They're valiant. And they turn back and they don't trust. They don't believe. And they go their own way and they forget what their God is capable of. As Vody Bauckham says, you picking up what I'm laying down here. Look, you're equipped, you're prepared, you have theology, you have doctrine, you have resources, you have a church, you have all of this, and the moment difficulty comes, you turn, you turn to fear, you run. What kind of people are we? You, you, you mean to tell me you've already forgot the works of God? You already forgot what He can do, what He's done, what He will do? You've already forgotten? that that we have to live in fear every day and respond like the world does because there's a delta strain i'm just encouraged they're starting to learn the greek alphabet the next strain's going to be the lambda that's the next letter they turned back shamefully violated god's law and their covenant with him they trampled the covenant and refused the law they demonstrated shameful ingratitude to god for the favors he had shown them Note, they had forgot, as Matthew Henry said, they, they forgot, our forgetfulness of God's works is at the very bottom of our disobedience to his laws. We don't obey because we forgot what he is able to do. Specifically, Ephraim, here, verse 61, verse 67, Ephraim turned back. First Samuel, there are several options. You could do number. First Samuel 4, verse 10 and 11. The Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated. They fled, every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. They have God and all that he can do, and they turned their back, believing the lie, looking to the flesh, and they lose the ark of God. Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. Make it personal. Are you a person who is losing the glory of God because you live in fear, not willing to trust the God who is able? Think about this. One more quote by Matthew Henry, just one more. He says about Ephraim, the shameful cowardice of the children of Ephraim, that warlike tribe so famed for valiant men, Joshua's tribe, the children of that tribe, though as well armed as ever, turned back when they came to face the enemy. Or if you want it in a different light, I'll give it to you from Calvin. The children of Ephraim, I love the Puritans, they know how to put this stuff together. The children of Ephraim are also spoken of by way of comparison. To warn the true children of Abraham from the example of those who cut themselves off from the church and yet boasted of the title of church without exhibiting holy fruits in their life. 
I know people all over the world. They got theology, they got doctrine, they got Jesus, they got religion, but they got no church. Because as soon as it becomes difficult to submit into a church and to give themselves wholly to the service of God in the church, they turn their backs and run. Like Ephraim. I'm not submitting to nothing because I'm American and I got my theology worked out, I got my doctrine. Tell me nothing, and so me and Jesus got our own thing going on, and you just know better than A.W. Pink hiding in his house till he dies. But the true children of God unite with the church, and they serve with everything they got until Jesus comes. Don't turn your back. Walk straight forward into the fight. Join hands and serve. You know, I was at the store, another store. I got all these store stories, you know. And so I go into the store, and so... You know, this is Texas. It's hot. It's hot. Yeah, I know it's hot. You know, it's, it's not raining. It's hot. I got it. It's hot. And so the lady says, that's why I don't want to go to hell. It's a pretty good line. And I said, well, if that's so, then you need to be in church. Oh, well, I talk to God all the time. And I said, yeah, but he loves this church. Conversation. God had performed awesome wonders. Then you look at verse 17. And it says, Yet they still sin more against him. They're rebelling, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart. They demanded food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can, can God? I don't know if he's able. I don't know if he can do it. I mean, he's so weak. He's such a pansy. You think God could feed us in the wilderness? This is what they asked. And look at verse 20. He struck, so they have that kind of attitude, and God just strikes a rock, and water comes out of it. Well, Kenny, I saw the rock, and I saw that great miracle, and then they say, can he give bread and provide meat for his people? I know he did that, but can he also do this? Newsflash, God can do anything. God can do anything he wants to do, and he is sufficient to meet our needs. You don't have to test him in this manner. The text says they multiplied their sins. They tested God and they're questioning God. And here we are in America sitting around. Can God sustain America? I don't even know if he wants to. It's not even the right question. Oh, can God take care of our economy? Can God hold on to my 401k? You don't need a 401k when you die. What are you going to do with it? You're going to be dead. Are you going to wake up in glory? Or are you going to wake up in hell? Well, can God, you think God can hey, give me food next week? Don't you think he has like a cattle on a thousand hills? Don't you think that he's able? Look, in America, I'm not even sure how you could go without food. Go to a third world country and things will change. Revelation of their heart. Look at verse 22a. They did not believe in God. God had, provoked, had been provoked, and yet he had been patient, verses 21 through 33, yet they didn't believe, and they didn't trust. They were radically wrong. Look at verse 30 again. I told you we would revisit it. Before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, God had given them manna, God had given them quail. Here's what happened in verse 30. They loved the gratification of their flesh more 
than they loved God. I'm happy as long as you give me what I want. But what God is wanting is reciprocated love. That God would love you and you would reciprocate that by loving Him. And, and these people here, God's loving, and they're like, are you going to give us more food? They love the food. Where's the bread? I think he's talking about the bread. You see that in the Gospel of John as well. It's like we're hung up on the flesh instead of being satisfied with the giver. Radically wrong in that. They had rocky hearts. Verses 32 through 37. God had brought judgment upon them. 21 through 31. And then look at their rocky hearts. Verse 32. In spite of all of this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. Look, don't check yourself out of this. We're sitting here in America in fear over all these things, but the reason is, is because we don't believe God. You understand that you can't get COVID unless God brings COVID upon you? That nothing can happen to you outside of the sovereignty of God? You can't even die early. You say, well, I don't believe that. You may not believe it, but it's still true. God is sovereign over all things. That doesn't mean you jump off a building on your head and see if the angels will come down and swoop you up, but it does mean that you're not to live in fear. Why would you live in fear when you've got a God that loves you this much? And yet we don't believe Him. We come to church, we hear the Bible preached, we hear great doctrines, we hear great theology, and then we live Monday through Saturday in fear because of what the media is telling us. I'm telling you, people are locked up in their homes, they're scared to death. I was up here just the other day, I'm like, oh, are we back to mask? Well, so-and-so got the COVID the other day over there, and I'm like, okay, but you don't have to live in fear. Look... Please understand, you say, but people die, Christians die of COVID. Yes, and I may get COVID tomorrow, and I may be dead tomorrow night, but if I am, I'll be home. I'll be in glory, and I'll never have COVID again, and I'll never deal with sin again. Death is not the final voice. Where does it sting? Death is the doorway to glory. I wish we could believe that. I wish I could believe it. They disbelieved. You know why they repented in this section right here? You go back in there to 30, <clears throat> 32, uh, verse 33. So he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When they killed them, they, when he killed them, notice, they sought him, they repented and sought God earnestly. They repented for self-protection. It got bad enough that I better repent or he's going to take me out as well. People do this. They do it in jailhouse religion. They do it in church religion. They do it in this sense like, oh, I better come clean or God's going to be really mad at me. That's not biblical repentance. They remembered God, but their heart was not changed. Look at verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock. The Most High God, their Redeemer. That's good. But they flattered Him with their mouths, and they lied to Him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward Him, and they were not faithful to His covenant. They were rebellious. Verse 40. God had shown Himself to be love in verse 38 and 39. He sh we're dealing with this type of people, people like us, and God shows himself to be loving. And then verse 40, 
How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness. They grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and again and again and again and again. They provoked the Holy One of Israel. They didn't remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe. I mean, you would think you could remember walking through water on dry land and seeing all your enemies drowned, but somehow they forgot all of this. They forgot when he performed his signs in Egypt and all of his marvels in the fields of Zoan. They grieved God. They provoked God. They forgot God. Then, go to verse 44. 40, no, 56. Verse 56. So God shows himself to be able. You have all the things he did to deliver them out of Egypt. God's very able to deliver a whole nation. It's not a deal for him. He didn't exert no energy. It's perfectly sufficient to do that. Then you get to verse 56. After he did all of those things, verse 56. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They did not keep his testimonies. They turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. The love of God's being poured out, poured out every day on you, on us, on a nation, in a sense. It's general love. It's been poured out. And yet the people are unfaithful. You see all these things listed here that these people are doing. You see how they're responding. This is what's staggering to my mind and heart. I would have been done with these people after like the first scene. I just don't have the capacity to love like this. That's why I'm so awestruck by it, that people acting like this, and God keeps giving and giving. God's being patient with you every day. He's being kind to you every day. He's bestowing things on you every day. He's doing all of this, but even in the midst of our ingratitude. And they become idolaters. In Here's the God of heaven, the creator of the entire universe, and we're making totem poles. We're making high places. We're making whatever it is of this world be the main thing. We're making our kids' dance thing, our kids' rodeo thing, the basketball thing, the hobby thing, the car thing, the house thing, the family thing. Anything we can make into a God, we make it into a God. And God's in heaven going, I'm the one that loves you. And why are you messing with all of this and putting all these things before me when I've done all this for you? It just staggers me. I keep thinking at any moment God's going to go, that's it. We're done. But his love is so deep. It's so long. I didn't even know how to find the bottom. I can't even look to get close to see the bottom of this love, that he would love a people like us. To think about the disciples and to think about Peter saying, can you see Peter there? I don't know him. I've never met the man. I swear I do not know him. And you see Jesus look. Was Jesus saying, Peter... I still love you. I still love you. Peter goes out and just begins to weep bitterly. How could I sin against such love? And that was biblical repentance and restoration in the end of the Gospel of John and then a man that was devoted with his whole life to the glory of Christ. Lastly, just a few implications. The implications of this teaching in Psalm 78. 
God's love is not to be presumed upon. A right understanding of God's love does not promote worldly living. Secondly, it is to be reciprocated. When genuine love is received, it should be returned. And the greatest way you can return it is by loving your brother. When you love God, you will love your brother. Number three, implications of God's love. It is to be remembered. Could you take at least once in a day and just think, what has God done for you? What has God done for you? Think about all of the things that God has done for you. Look around. Not everybody has what you have. Not everybody's experienced what Even is able to read the Word of God for themselves. Just think about how good God's been to you. Your spouse, your family, your house, even the material things. But what about the spiritual things? He's given you church. He's given you theology. He's given you doctrine. He's given you brothers and sisters in Christ. These things are precious and they're good. Can we not remember this? Think about it. And then we, could you not go to a higher spot and remember a cross and a Savior who substituted and bore your sin on his body to a tree that you might be clothed in the righteousness of Christ? I mean, can we not remember that tomorrow morning when the news comes out and all this fear comes back to you? Say, but I know this my Savior substituted for me. And I know I'm forgiven. And blessed is the man whose sins are not counted against him. I'm a blessed man. I don't care what the government says. I don't care if they lock me up. I don't care if they burn me at the stake. I don't care if they drown me. Well, I do care about drowning because I don't want to go that way. I'd rather be shot. Just shoot me. Don't drown me. Claustrophobia would kill me before I got in the water. But could we not remember the cross? God's love is to be received. How do you receive it? You must believe him. That's the catch. You can receive it only if you believe it. And lastly, maybe controversial, his love, this love that I'm talking about, this love that he has for Judah and for David, this love that he has in John 13, 1 for his disciples, is elective love. So I'm reminding you that the love of God is not universal. It's universal in a generic sense. He provides for the world. He's kind to the world in general. But this type of love we're talking about here is a family love. This is a covenant love between God and His people in which He chose them unto Himself. And they are His. And we're called His children now, for so we are. And everyone who's been elected by the grace of God and has been brought into the family of God, and has God as their Father, you can know this with absolute certainty. In a world of lies and confusions and failures, you can know something, that as a child of God, you will be loved to the end of eternity. I'd ask you this. Submit yourself to the shepherd and trust him no matter what happens in this world. God's people should believe that he loves them and that he is able to handle every situation that occurs. His providence is impeccable. Who are Jesus' own? Everyone who repents of their sin and believes upon the Lord Jesus Christ 
is a child of God. So I ask you, who will you believe? This is where it gets real. This is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. Who will you believe? The media? They do not love you. You're going to believe the politician? He does not love you. Are you going to believe the world? The world does not love you. Are you going to believe your co-workers and your little gossip central circles? They don't love you. Are you going to believe the philosophers on TV? They don't love you. Are you going to believe the information you can get off Google? Google does not love you. Oh, that you would believe that God alone loves you. You would believe Him and trust Him. You'd walk out of this church today in a sense of confidence, knowing that you are loved by the Creator of the universe. And He has the power to sustain, the power to guide, and the power to protect. No matter what happens in this world, nothing can happen to you except at the disposal of your Father's will. Believe it and live in it. Be confident. Hold your head up. Know that you're a saint. Know that you're elected. Know that you're redeemed. Walk in this world with confidence. And when everybody around you is all a fearing, you sit and say, I don't know what you people are afraid about. I have a God. I, close, I remember, it sticks in my mind. I know I'm out of time, but it sticks in my mind. I just remember John MacArthur, and he gets in the taxi, and he gets in the taxi, and the guy's got the dreadlock hair and all this, and he's got this little bobble-headed thing on his dash, and MacArthur's in the back seat, and MacArthur says, What's the deal on your dash? The guy says, oh, that's my God. And he explains his God. This little bobble-headed thing was his God. And then he gets through with his explanation, and he goes, he looks at MacArthur in the back seat, and he says, do you have a God? MacArthur said, yeah, but he won't fit on the dash. We have a really big God who really loves us. Brother Jeff, come and let us sing.